Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hello, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's Cindy Howes. Thanks for joining us. Alex Spiegelman has been making folk music weird for years. Recently, his partnership with Anna Eggie has put him on the radar as one of the most creative producers for folk musicians, working with people like Taylor Ashton, David Wax Museum, and Sadie Gustafson Zook. He's part of the innovative indie folk band Cuddle Magic, who just released a record in 2020 called Bath. Alec also found time during quarantine to release a solo album, which is filled with his signature charm and weirdness, highlighted by brass and woodwinds. Alec's personality is very playful, which translates really well into his solo work and the albums he produces. A Harvard graduate, Alec talks about the strange hierarchy found on campus and how, if the classes were easier, he may have turned out to be an engineer. Lucky for us, he was swayed in a musical direction. After Harvard, he attended the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston and developed lifelong friends and collaborators in his band Cuddle Magic and the musicians surrounding that scene, including Lake Street Dive. His new album, Airplane Mode, features his song, Heard a Little, which was co-written by Anna Eggie. Anna's also recorded a version, and you can even find a recording on Cuddle Magic's latest of that song. It's got to be one of the best songs I've ever heard, and I wouldn't be surprised if more people recorded it. We're going to take a listen to Alex's version on his solo record, and then we'll get to our conversation with Alex Spiegelman on Basic Folk. Spiegelman, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Very happy to be here. So let me preface this by saying there's not a lot of information out there on the internet about you personally. So I have to ask you like a lot of like basic questions to find out about like I'm particularly interested in like your upbringing and your early life. So if if it's all right with you, let's start there in terms of like, tell me about where you grew up and how your surroundings may have impacted your personality. Oh, my personality. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, largely for a very brief moment 
a couple years when I was three, four, and five years old. We lived in the suburbs of Philadelphia, but mostly I grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Harrisburg is like central PA. It's central PA. It's the, it's the state capital. My father uh, worked in state government when I was growing up and worked in government his, his entire life. Is there a reason that somebody would live in Harrisburg if they didn't work in government? There are people who live in Harrisburg who don't work in government, but I think it it may it may be have been the biggest industry by the nineties, by the by the eighties and nineties when I was growing up there. Um, I think it became the capital also because it was centrally located when the capital was chosen, and it's on the Susquehanna River, which is a a wide and shallow, but easily like a bargeable river, and it's it's uh, on the edge of a, a low run of mountains, uh, part of the Appalachians, um, and I think there was a bunch of there's a bunch of rail traffic that went through there, probably a lot of steel and coal and things like that. Is the topography of Harrisburg like similar to Pittsburgh, where it like kind of looks like an amazing train set? No, no, it's um, it's much lower. It's on the edge of this uh, set of of pretty low mountains. Pittsburgh feels like a like a veritable like Rust Belt San Francisco to me, um, right. with beautiful you know uh, views and everything like that. But Harrisburg is kind of like on this low area by the by the river, mm. and it's a wide, shallow river. It does flood occasionally. It flooded once in the 90s and took out uh, a giant, took out uh, an old steel or I guess wrought iron or something bridge that you could walk over until it was taken out. So it would flood dramatically every now and then hmm. uh, and get some neighborhoods like within a few blocks of the uh, of the riverbank. Wow. Yeah, what was it like for you to grow up in Harrisburg, Is in a suburb? In a inner suburb of Harrisburg. My mailing address was a Harrisburg address, but you go to my parents' house, which I did just a few days ago after testing and renting a car and driving out there with my sister, and it you, you definitely it doesn't feel like a city. You're in like mm-hmm. an old um, farm or orchard or whatever that long ago became divided into uh, tracks for people to put like single-story ranch homes on. Mm. Nice. What was your family structure like? And in terms of like music, how did your family treat music in the house? Uh, my parents both have a little bit of musical background, but not terribly much. My my um, mom played a little bit of nylon string guitar growing up, and she worked as a preschool and a kindergarten teacher and sometimes maybe a first grade teacher at different places all all throughout me growing up most of the time she she did some other things too and i have her guitar her guitar is right there oh man yeah. it's in a very prominent place yeah. behind you yeah so this her guitar sounds like this it's this old uh guild nylon string i suppose from the late 60s or the early 70s and and as you can tell she doesn't play it very much anymore she you w- took it i took it yeah <laughs> but she she never played a lot of guitar and i don't feel she she's happy that i that i have it but she would she would do things like baby beluga with preschool classes um so she knew a, a handful of songs but i don't I don't really remember her playing very much when I when I was growing up. She's like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music teaching Doa Deer. 
Yeah, I don't think she ever got to that level, but that that's kind of the <laughs> the idea of 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 how she might she might have done it. Um it, it it she was she was happy enough to see it go. I think I took it off to college after like messing around with her guitar as I got to be more musical in high school. I took it off to college with me. And then at some point I gave it back because she had gotten a job where she did want to sing a few songs with the preschool kids and so she had it back for a few for a year or so and then I took it back again and she she doesn't really miss it. Um mm. my dad who had played clarinet in the school band when he was growing up outside of Philadelphia um was never a a great clarinetist by any measure but and kind of stopped playing by the time he went to college but he's a really really big jazz fan and he had a massive uh jazz record collection. And I listened to this with him uh, all the time when I was growing up. And so I I knew all of this Duke Ellington music and Jack Teagarden and Benny Goodman and Billie Holiday, all this uh, 30s jazz, especially 30s and 40s jazz. And just that was the only thing I listened to. And I knew it pretty well. Like I could sing along to all this stuff and Ooh. knew who these people were. And then when I started to play clarinet, in the school band in fourth. Is that your first instrument? First instrument yeah. was clarinet, school band in fourth grade. I immediately also started to try to play these old standards. Like I remember uh, getting the instrument home and my dad being incredibly excited to show me how to play. Um, don't the this uh, stormy weather don't know why mm. there's no sun up in the sky stormy weather because he could kind of remember how to play that on clarinet but not very well so it was funny because he would try to pick up the clarinet and really confidently <laughs> want to show show it to me and he couldn't really do it he would make a mistake it's not an instrument that you can just pick up and be like oh this old thing he had kind of been a government lawyer for long enough that he wasn't really <laughs> as on top of his clarinet playing as he had been when he was a you know a high school junior or whatever but he did really uh, get me excited about learning to play that music and i did learn how to play those songs almost immediately when I started playing. And so parallel to being in the school band, I started to try to play all those old standards. And then there was a really, really great organization in Harrisburg called the Central Pennsylvania Friends of Jazz. And they had a youth ensemble. And I eventually got uh, um, got myself, well, my, my you know parents, my, my dad brought me to participate in that when I was in seventh grade or something like that. And that was great because show you they you know encourage you to go up there and improvise and kind of how that yeah. all see how that all worked it really sounds like you had quite an affinity for jazz when you were a kid and in thinking of like being a kid who picks up a woodwind instrument like or or just like being a musical kid in high school the jazz ensemble was just something that like was extra that you had to like try out for but it sounds like you really uh connected with jazz on, at a pretty early age, what was it about the sound that that got you? I don't know. I mean, it was the only thing I listened to, and I listened to a lot of it and a lot of good stuff. My dad had a great record collection and 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 good taste in that music and a deep knowledge of it. And I suppose if you listen to a lot of anything, you get to kind of understand how to listen to it and and what to listen for. Because I've I've found um, myself 
enjoy things more in my later life after I kind of caught up to understanding what was going on. Like I, I hated Bob Dylan. I think the first dozen times I heard it, I heard Bob Dylan and <laughs> it's pretty normal though. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty normal. And then one day it just kind of clicked and I, and I had heard, I had enough context, I suppose, to understand what he was after and what, mm. what kind of like artistic games he was playing. So I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, there, it's hard to even articulate what I love about that music, but but it's great. How has your early experience, like you're talking about improv jazz, mm-hmm. yeah? How has that experience with improv impacted your playing in jazz and also like beyond the the jazz world? It's a great musical tradition, and it um, I don't know the whole the whole practice of uh, of making it up as you go along within harmonic structures that are familiar throughout western music and beyond is an odd and uh, useful skill you know kind of composing on the fly and making counterpoint happen with other people and and finding new melodies in um in the structures of of popular songs it's it's kind of like the basic like uh musical skill that i that i you know rely on to do everything um, and, and it, uh, it gets your ears working a lot. Um, I suppose, you know, I mean, I've spent a lot of time trying to work beyond those conventions that I, that I take for granted all the stuff that it was, uh, that it kind of gave me. It, it just teaches you how to, how to actually listen and, and react to what's going on. Um, and you have a real working knowledge of, of not just what the chords are called, but what they sound like and what it means that there is a chord going on at all and uh, the framework that that gives to various people to play notes. Yeah. Before um, we get too far away from like the origin of your, I'm like really interested in like how your personality seeps into your musical output. And from like the times that the few times that we've interacted mm-hmm. um, and listening to your music that you create through Cuddle Magic and through your solo work, um, your music and your lyrics, and also hearing the music you've produced, like I've sensed a lot of like playfulness, curiosity, and like interest, and almost like I was trying to find another word besides magic to use that doesn't sound like you know what like some people would call like woo woo. You know, like there's like this interest in this like tapping into like something mystical. Um, so I wrote down a couple of examples, like the 22nd song about checking in on the dogs of women you know, and the video clips where you've orchestrated a horn section along with like a nearby church bell that is just going off in, in like yeah. the background. And yeah. also like, um, I really feel like Anna Eggie's music became more like whimsical with the horns and the beats that you put into her um, in her album, especially White Tiger. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking about the, those examples and those traits that you hear in your music like must translate into your personal identity. Wow. I, well, I'm, I'm going to be horrible at speaking about myself, but, but one thing that you made me think of there is that idea of magic, which is not a bad word. Um, and, and like, um, the process of kind of transcribing things that occur in the world and, and seem a little accidental, like those church bells off in the distance and, um, and then kind of orchestrating along with those. So, um, I kept on working on trying to be a jazz musician 
and for some part of my adolescence, I thought I might become a jazz musician, whatever that was going to be in the 21st century, which was a, an open question. And then after I went to college for other things, I I went to New England Conservatory and studied jazz in this odd conservatory setting. And I studied uh, with, among other people, a pianist named Rand Blake. And Rand Blake is this great pedagogue at New England Conservatory who's taught a lot of wonderful musicians. And his he's a pianist. And his what I took from his teaching was this commitment to really, really fully engaging with whatever it is that you hear in a recording, a recorded performance or a live performance, and kind of not trying to resist the urge to um, to uh, analyze it with frameworks that you know, trying to resist the urge to say, oh, well, it, it starts on the, the one chord, and then it goes to the four chord, and then it goes to the five chord, or resist the urge to notate it too fast and say, well, you have this note D and then this note F, and it sounds like a dotted eighth note and a sixteenth after it. Take your time before you do any of that stuff, because if you do it too fast, you'll write down what you think you understand, and it'll be based upon things you already know or frameworks that were given to you. But if you if you're really slow and and like you really take your time to just listen and listen and listen and listen and, and then eventually start to sing along, you'll avoid all of those kind of like, you might call them like... I want to give you the word institutional. Institutional works. I was, I was going for something a little different, but that kind of, that kind of gets at it. Like um, you want to avoid putting it into, into any kinds of like uh, established buckets that that are, exist for our convenience and our and our speed of comprehension, because it might very well be that, say, in this Billie Holiday recording that you're trying to really learn something from, that it's only after like two or three weeks of listening to it with no instrument anywhere close to you that you realize that really, really what makes it special and unique and beautiful is some just ever so slight out of tuneness that happens on the third note of some phrase and it's and it's just impossible to notate um within uh you know the western systems we have exactly what it is that she's doing in that recording and because you you gave yourself two or three weeks to keep listening to it and you didn't write it down too fast you didn't just gloss over it and write what it kind of basically is you you mm. waited until you're confronting what it actually is it's almost like you're interjecting humanity back into music. Yeah, by not uh, by not trying trying to learn anything too fast, and not trying to translate it into the familiar too fast, kind of like just trying to deal with it fully. There's a lot of great stuff that Rand Blake talked about. I wouldn't want anyone to think that that's the the be all and end all of his teaching, but it, it's kind of the fundamental thing that I got from him. That's super wide. It's super cool. It's it's and it's applicable in so many ways, and and it's applicable in in a couple of the things that you mentioned. It's applicable when you have a recording. I think of I think of that when I'm when I you know have my phone uh, perched on the window of my apartment, and I take a video of the bells off in the distance, and I and I'm and then the project is like, how much can I like 
make something new that seems to exist within that other thing. Like I'm not, I'm not setting the boundaries here. I'm kind of, I'm just going to put the phone up and I'm going to let it listen to what's going on in the neighborhood. And I'm going to try to, to make what I make things that accompany it and interact with it subservient to and following whatever else is going on. And I think of Rand Blake also when I think of what I try to do when I work with other songwriters who are gracious enough to let me into their musical worlds, like like Anna Aggie, was, because um, that's such a hard thing to do, um, I've learned after being a songwriter myself, it takes so much confidence and bravery to bring your music to other people and let them do stuff to it, because inevitably they're going to do stuff that you don't like and you didn't expect. At least I've found that to be the case when I was the person who was the songwriter letting other people into my musical world, and it's really hard. It's, it's like, it, it's very challenging. So the more that I do this, I, I get incrementally better at not imposing myself so quickly on what other people have already kind of brought to the table. And to the extent that I think Anna and I made a couple of good records, and I'm I'm really really proud of those records. I, I I'm so thankful to have been led into that musical world in particular, and really proud of what we came up with. I think um, the best things that I did in making those two records were when I just shut up and tried to sort of like just dig out and, and allow to emerge things that were that were in Anna's songs. I want to hear more about your process in like develop your developing your writing style as a songwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, your lyrics are intelligent. Your sense of humor is uh, pretty prevalent. Um, and your lyrics are like almost conversational. And it's interesting to hear that you did not like Bob Dylan at first. Well, so I eventually I'd figured to, it out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear more about that and like the evolution of your uh, songwriting process and how it developed. Sure, sure. Um, so I was growing up with this amazing jazz record collection and I listened to a lot of singers. I loved Jack Teagarden singing from a really early age and Nat Cole and Billie Holiday, and Ella Fitzgerald, and all, you know a certain era of jazz singer, and Louis Armstrong, of course. So I knew all that stuff, and I and I kind of knew that way of singing. Um, and Jack Teagarden in particular is kind of an interesting singer, because well, Louis Armstrong is too, but Jack Teagarden was much, much better known as a trombonist. Or maybe not much better known, but he's, he was kind of known as a trombonist first, and he he sang a lot of people who didn't even have much of a vocabulary to to talk about exactly what was going on but there was this perception that even like a non-musician could figure out that oh he's a he's kind of a horn player singing and there's a way that his singing is like that of an improvising instrumentalist first so i was i was listening to people like that and I Do we call that scatting? Well, not just the scatting. I mean, even even the way that he would approach a lyric, he kind of had this freedom about approaching a lyric that Louis Armstrong also has and Billie Holiday also has, where they were willing to take these kind of departures from the um from the written melody, 
but they would do it with the confidence of someone who was constantly inventing their own melodies, you know, and, and they would be able to like change the phrasing and change the melody and change the, uh, change the, even change words here and there to like adapt to, to, to what they wanted to do musically. Um, and that kind of always inspired me. And I, I probably always wanted to sing like that, even though I didn't have the confidence to do it until I was like a little bit older in my twenties. But, um, but my mom also had a pretty good selection of kind of folky records. Like we had some Bonnie Raitt records and we had some Paul Simon and we had a couple of Beatles records. That's not really folk music. Um, and, uh, but lyrically. Lyrically, yeah. And, very and, good. <laughs> and so I, and um, James Taylor, and she had a Roach's Christmas album that she loved to there listen to when she was ba- <laughs> baking cookies. Every year the Roach's Christmas collection would come on. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and as I started to broaden my listening to pop music, I got about all the way up to 19, the 1960s and was listening to all these records and figuring out Beatles tunes on the piano at home. And Paul Simon was the first, the first lyricist that really kind of grabbed me. I think... What it was about Paul Simon was that there was so much going on harmonically and melodically, especially in like 60s, 70s solo Paul Simon records. Paul Simon, Paul Simon. Well, I'm thinking of like Ryman Simon and this oh, co- yeah. this collection that we had that was called Greatest Hits, Etc., which had like a third of the songs from Ryman Simon and some other stuff from, okay. from a similar era and had all these great uh, session musicians from the 70s that I kind of was aware were also, uh, you know, jazz accomplished musicians. So I, I was a pretty pretentious jazz snob until I got <laughs> I to can college. Tell. Thank you. <laughs> and so like, it, you know, I wanted to hear like these great, I wanted to hear Phil Woods' alto saxophone solo on the end of a Paul Simon tune and, the, and you know, and the Michael, the Michael Brecker uh, tenor solo on, I think, is that Bridge Over Troubled? No, it's, uh, it's another one. Um, I'm forgetting and that kind of drew me into those records just the great the the amazing bands and then Paul Simon was so literate and thoughtful within these kind of obviously accomplished like musical frameworks that I kind of finally got it in my head that those things could work together and I and I I started I loved uh, American Tune I also loved that it was based on a Bach chorale, and I dorked out about the fact that it had that, you know, kind of uh, like next meta musical reference built into it. Um, and I started to, I, I one of the very first songs that I learned how to sing and play on the guitar at the same time is kind of a pretty complicated Paul Simon tune called "I Do It for Your Love." all these chords moving around and 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 kind of a difficult modulating melody and the difficulty of the music gave me the confidence to think that I could do do it justice like like as a non-singer as someone who had a lot of self-consciousness about the sound of my own voice the difficulty of this melody made me feel like well if I can just sing all the notes and the rhythms right I'm kind of doing it and I'm doing something impressive and I can feel comfortable doing that in front of people. 
Um, whereas like singing a Dylan song was just well, well beyond me. I didn't understand the, I, I, I wasn't, my ears weren't at the point yet where I could analyze Dylan on a, on a really detailed rhythmic melodic level, which I like to do now. Like I think Dylan's an amazing singer by any measure and, and, you know, any way of thinking about singing. I just think he's incredible, but Mm. I didn't, that was beyond me. But Paul Simon, who's kind of singing these melodies that you could kind of notate if you had to, they're not that crazy in his phrasing, you know, his phrasing, it's eighth notes and quarter notes and stuff, but, but moving through these fancy changes, I could do that. And so it was kind of accessible to me. And the lyric of that song in particular I do it for your love is really, really cool and kind of um, smartly poetic in a way that doesn't um, hit you over the head. Um, it's a really great song, and then and other songwriters that that I was trying to copy when I was starting to write songs, like in my mid twenties, Paul Simon was right up there, and uh, Burt Bacharach was right up there because I realized that he kind of did all these funky things with time and phrasing that I was really interested in for, for musical, as musical devices at the same time. Mm. Um, and I started to kind of, and then, and then I would hear people who had kind of humor in a way that I really appreciated. Not like, you know, I, I, we had another record when I was growing up, the guy who did poisoning pigeons in the park. What was his name? He's like a comedy songwriter from the 50s. Tom Lear? Tom Lear, yeah. Tom Lear. He's hilarious. And so some part of me wanted to be... He's kind of hilarious in a Monty Python kind of way. He's like, an, you know, like that kind of uh, sense of humor, almost, but an American version of it. And very dry in his presentation, but not, not in his writing. The writing is a little over the top. Um, I loved that. But I didn't try to really write songs like that. But eventually, when I heard people like like Dan Byrne, um, who I think got played on the Philly, like I used to listen to that Philly station that had the folk show in the afternoons, XPN. I'm not familiar. Oh, XPN. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I used to, I used to listen to uh, to to the the afternoon show on XPN. Gene Shea. Yeah, but there's another guy, uh, World Cafe. Who was the World Cafe? David Die. David Die. I'm so familiar with David Die's voice and Previous- everything guest on basic folk wow i didn't see that one i want to listen to that yeah we mostly talk about steve winwood that's uh, what else would you do right exactly (laughs) what you would talk about um i love that david dye show and that exposed me to lots of like uh 90s folk and jonathan brooke and uh i really really loved uh white chocolate space egg that album by liz uh, fair yeah liz fair and there's a liz fair song that i i i'm still one of the greatest songs I think that's ever been written and I want to write I, I kind of most of the music that I make to some degree is copying uh, is copying Liz Fair's song not from that album I maybe does that album yeah it's called uh, I can help if you give me a hint can you what's on what's let me see. her most popular song is polyester bride that's the one it's such a great that's song it. and it has this weird modulation in it that's very kind of like Burt Bacharach-esque as well and it kind of sneaks you don't even realize that the key has changed until the section comes around again mm. and the lyric is hilarious and funny and, yeah, and poignant she's, funny. she's great she's awesome she's 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 like one of my songwriting heroes 
Um, definitely. Um, and then eventually I heard people like, uh, eventually I heard John Prine and it was like, whoa, oh, this is exactly, <laughs> this is exactly <laughs> what I've been trying to do my whole life. Um, this is the kind of persona that I could to some degree embody on stage and not feel like I was putting on airs, hmm. you know, just in terms of like being myself and being on stage and, and presenting my, like those are songs I could sing. I'm going to have to walk away from this interview listening to a bunch of songs. That's okay. Yeah. You went to Harvard. Yes. Um, you didn't go initially for music. I didn't go for music at all, but I ended up taking advantage of the music department there. I, I have a physics degree from Harvard. By my junior year, I was close enough to being done with my uh, degree requirements that I could kind of coast through the end of it with a, a B minus average or a C average and uh, and fill out the rest of my schedule with music department courses and other things that interested me. And I and I took some great music courses while I was there. Where did the interest in physics come from? I was always good at school, which was something that my parents really pushed. And, and it's a good thing to be. And I and I took right to it. And I was good at academics. And I was especially good at math and science. And uh, when I got to Harvard, that's what I figured I would do. Wow. And I've heard you talk about the release and relief you felt when you finally were able to switch your focus to music. Yeah, I was good at it, math and science. But when I, but I didn't love it enough to just kind of do it all the time anyway, or at least that's how I felt when I was an undergrad. There might be an alternate version of my life in another universe in which I don't go to Harvard and I go to some kind of more reasonable school without all kinds of competitive-minded, you know, kids and faculty, and uh, and I did better in my physics and math classes and didn't feel the struggle of being a public school person who had coasted through public school now finally confronted with difficult academic work mm. and I became an engineer or a scientist or something. But at least the way it worked out for me was I got there and I was not ready to work that hard, but I was too uh, pretentious to take easier courses. So I took kind of challenging Thanks, Jazz. math and physics courses. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then I, and I didn't do particularly well and I, and I struggled through it. And then I kind of found a lot more enjoyment and sense of self in extracurricular musical things. And I started to put my energy more there and I realized that I was, you know, not finishing problem sets sometimes because I was playing, you know, uh, cocktail hours at like the faculty lounge or something like that. Mm. And I cared more about that. Mm. And, uh, and I cared enough about it that I was willing to start practicing hard again, which I hadn't really done since I had left high school, because Harvard was too hard. I didn't have time to practice really hard. But then my junior year, I just kind of, I, I forget about it. Mm. And um, and I started to work on my instruments again. And, and uh, yeah, just decided that if the rest of my life was going to be, if the rest of my life turned out to be weddings and teaching 10-year-olds, that that would be okay, because I liked music enough to do that.
I read your blog post about the song Anybody Can Grow Up to Buy the USA that you wrote in 2018. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I don't yeah. I not don't necessarily want to talk about the person who inspired it, which you didn't name him. It's kind of like the Allison and Elvis Costello. Um Oh, who's the Allison and Elvis Costello? That's another know. song I love and I learned how to play. I could tell you exactly who that is. Like you, you everyone should know. And I almost feel guilty that I didn't make it more explicit. Oh. But I, I, I was thinking of, of, uh, of our current uh, advisor to the president, Jared Kushner, when I wrote that song. Mm. Um, wow. Because, because there is a lot of uh, journalism out there about how he got into Harvard. He wasn't as good as high school as I was. I'm pretty, I feel good about saying that. I mean, he's, he's risen to great heights, I suppose, but he didn't get into Harvard for being valedictorian or anything. He got into Harvard for having an incredibly wealthy father. Oh, wow. Um, and led him to heights of, of power and nonsense. That's crazy. Um, but he was, he was my year. We did not interact at all, needless to say. I think once with a on-campus, like, you know, funk band that I was in, I must have played the, um, what do they call them? Uh, the, uh, they don't call them frats at Harvard. They call them something else, like dining clubs or secret societies. Wig something makers. Like that. Yeah, there's some... I'm, Illuminati. I'm, proud of, I'm proud of myself for forgetting the name <laughs> of the institution that he was part of, but it's basically like Harvard's version of a frat. So it's like a frat with a lot more money. And I remember playing there once. Uh, otherwise, y- you don't get in there as a, uh, as a freshman, not part of the club, unless you're kind of in the hired band. So that's wild. And yeah, appreciate you di- uh, disclosing that. Um, the thing I wanted to hear about was you wrote about a funny shame, a discomfort with presumed privilege in attending Harvard. Oh, yeah. So I was trying to like, uh, you know, I was being too dry and coy for my own good. And I forget exactly who that joke was supposed to be on. But that's a funny thing that a lot of people who um, who do go to Harvard are a little, or some people who go to Harvard, I would say a lot, don't love to bring it up in conversation right away because then they immediately feel a kind of judgment combined with expectation from the people that they meet. Oh, you went to Harvard. You know, you must be either really smart or really privileged or really powerful or think that you're any of those things. And uh, and kind of an av- avoidance, people wanting to avoid that response and that judgment makes a lot of people say to the question, where did you go to college? Boston. And a lot of people will like evade, evade the question a little bit. Um, but I don't remember what kind of elaborate joke on joke I thought I was making when I wrote that blog post. The lesson from this, um, which I've now learned this lesson a few times, is if you want to make fun of, of someone and just really stick it to them, sometimes it's just better just tell people who you're talking about. <laughs> Jared Kushner. Yeah, yeah. Apparently. Absolutely. Right, right. Wow. Right. All right. Well, that song is, I'm going to go listen to that song again. Yeah. Um. After Harvard, you attended New England Conservatory of Music. Yes. Which sounds like you finally got your life on track. <laughs> I was, I felt so lucky and privileged to be able to go there. And, and then it was two years of feeling like it was my job to practice eight hours a day again. And I was just kind of in heaven. 
Mm. Um, and there were so many great instructors there, Rand Blake among them, and so many colleagues that I met there and still play mm. music with. Everyone in Cuddle Magic, all the people in Lake Street Dive, lots of lots of really great people making really cool sounds. Yeah, with Cuddle Magic, mm-hmm. you say the members of the band are conservatory trained yet folk musicians by temperament. What does that mean? Uh, it means I had to write some kind of bio at one point. I think I might have done that. Um, I think what I was trying to put across was I was trying not to hide from the fact that we went to music school, which I think we were all at some point, like we wanted to underplay that because it felt like not the right way to promote your, your indie rock band. Um, and, uh, but yeah, we, even though we were mostly kind of had jazz backgrounds, um, we wanted to make songs with words and no solos and acoustic guitars. Hmm. I think that's all it means. Also, we all loved, I think, the range of of music that that gets classified as folk these days. And we had varying degrees of of experience with that music. I mean, Ben kind of came from a folk music family. Um, and, And I had kind of found my way to that stuff and found my way to old time even even when I was still in Harvard you know kind of an obsession with old time music and and other things and the name Cuddle Magic came from how you initially all played together yeah or maybe something else lost to history which is that you would like huddle almost cuddling we had to be really close because we the 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 initial concept of the band was was um we're gonna do songs and we're going to really work out these kind of, we're, we're going to think really hard about the orchestrations and the arrangements. Those were kind of givens from the beginning, but we're going to do it all really, really quietly. And so when we started out performing, um, it was, you know, few or no microphones and all unamplified, quiet acoustic instruments. And how did that feel at first to like play so close to people? I would imagine it would be like, either very scary or just like incredibly comforting but how how was it for you so great for me personally it was everything that I wanted from music it was all this stuff that I was jealous of that I saw other people doing because I was starting to um I was starting to become more a part of this kind of folk scene that's very uh active and vibrant in Boston and I was playing and touring with Miss Tess do you know do you know Tess yeah and like meeting all these people at Passim and meeting and listening to uh, Tim Guerin's band at, at, Toad. at Toad. Every weekend I get out there. Tim Guerin's band I got exposed to through another Harvard student who found his way away from physics to music named Tyler Wood, who now makes amazing records. Um, and I think somewhere up like near Hudson or Catskill, really, really cool musician. And he played with um, maybe Anita Suhanan, who used to open some mm-hmm. of those nights for for Tim and he hipped me to like checking out Tim's band and this is a lot of Boston or this is a lot of Cambridge music history. so much Boston but like <laughs> I loved that that there that that band which is so good with Jim Ulrich and Paul uh shoot the Aruda brothers and but it was mostly like Scott Aruda on trumpet and Paul Allstrand on tenor and I had never heard horns used in kind of roots music like that well for also like for those who are not familiar Tim Guerin is a Cambridge musician who yeah. for like 25 years played every Monday night 
at this place called Toad in Cambridge. Yeah. So good. And then after a while, he started playing every Monday night at Atwoods. Yeah. And I believe that the residency is he doesn't do it anymore. Is that oh, true? Oh, he, he stopped. Well, he's probably not I doing anything he, this year. It's a funny yeah, year. Yeah, no, nobody's doing anything <laughs> right. for a while. Um, but he, I think the Atwood res- residency um, is not happening anymore. But it was like legendary you know people would and toad is and i think atwoods is also a place where there's no cover so it's like you just go and you just you just drink beer but like it's it's uh historical in the cambridge roots scene atwoods is great toad is great listening to tim's band on monday nights was such an education hearing them so close to people i kind of went on a little of a side note because that band is loud that band was (laughs) so loud and i loved it and it was great but but Session Americana, which I also kind of started to get exposed to at that point, had this aesthetic, has this aesthetic where even if it kind of gets boisterous, it's as if you're kind of sitting in a living room with a bunch of like the coolest uncles you could possibly imagine. <laughs> and just by accident, everyone's making this beautiful music. And that, that, um, that I was just in love with that. I have an uncle, my mom's uh, brother-in-law, who played guitar and sang James Taylor songs and Bob Dylan songs and stuff like that growing up. And I was just always blown away at how casually music seemed to be integrated in his life. It's like oh, he could just he could just pick up a guitar and lead everyone through songs. And I used to love playing clarinet because I had studied jazz and I kind of understood, I could hear things going on and I could figure out how to play along with kind of anything that he could throw at me. And that was one of my greatest musical pleasures growing up. And then I came to Boston and I start being more a part of this Passim scene and to see this beautiful casual presentation that Session Americana did that just kind of like drew me right in. I wanted to do that kind of thing. And I wanted to do the thing that I would see, I'd be hanging out with Tess at you know parties in someone's apartment late at night and she or Avi Salloway or David Wax who I started to run into around that time or all of these other people that were kind of floating around Cambridge you, you they could just pass the guitar around and make music happen just sitting there at, at 11 o'clock at night at one in the morning and people could join in and it was so it was so kind of communal in a way that none of the sort of difficult advanced modern jazz music I was trying to play was. Hmm. Um, and I wanted to be part of that. And I felt also some kind of sense of not being a true musician if I couldn't play this kind of fundamentally American instrument that it seemed like everyone, whether they were a musician or not, could pick up. Anyone could just pick up a guitar, at least on the, at these parties, and play and sing a song. And I felt like, okay, I've got to get that together. To really, mm-hmm. to really call myself a musician, I should figure that out. How do you think that you helped to shape that scene? Like, where where did you leave your mark in the Boston roots world? Wow, I don't know. Um, I mean, uh, yet yet to be seen. That's a funny thing for me to judge. Is everyone now? Uh, I can't. I can't. That's a hard one to answer. Get back um, to me. I do. I do feel like this. Well. Here's something. After, maybe I'm being a little unnecessarily self-congratulatory about this, but I think after all of us at in Cuddle Magic and Lake Street Dive 
had left New England Conservatory, I feel like in the five and ten years after that, the kind of music we were trying to make and making eventually became part of the uh, the uh, the coursework at New England Conservatory. Like they started to hire more people with Americana backgrounds, and we weren't the only people who kind of made that happen. Ifo Donovan was there mm-hmm. um, when we were there. Uh, and kind of a little overlapping and before us, I feel like now you can go to New England Conservatory and you could study old time music and you could study songwriting and and all that stuff for us at the time was extracurricular and a little mm. bit outside of of the instruction. Um, so so yeah, maybe there's a new generation of people kind of blending those influences and hopefully I'm I'm certain other things that 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 um, are are hard to kind of define. Or, or um, at this point. The new Cuddle Magic record is called Bath. Yep. Um, and it was recorded in a bathroom. Right. We went back to our roots um, <laughs> in terms of being all acoustic and close together. And, and a bathroom seemed like the nice way to do it. Yeah, it must have felt very familiar. Totally. You get, I mean, we, we, had, we had diverged. We had gone, we had kind of gotten deeply into electronic post-production and all kinds of things. And our record before it has drum machines and vocoders and vocoders, you know, and percussion run through vocoders and, and all kinds of like 21st century pop elements as, uh, you know, through, through our prism. And, and this was just kind of back to what you can do with, with six people in a very small room singing very, very, very quietly. And all together with no with no overdubs and edits or anything like that. Logistically, like, what did the bathroom look like? Because I read that it was like bigger than an average bathroom. Bigger than an average bathroom. It's kind of a nice master bathroom in in kind of a nice house. It had like a a tub, and and Ben and Kristen were standing in the tub, like a claw, like sort of clawfoot. When kind they of were tub. recording, they stood in the tub. Yeah, yeah, we had to use the tub. Because there wasn't enough space in the bathroom to not so what use do you, the tub. What do you think of um, recording in the tub did to did to like the the sound? Well, the whole thing is kind of a wash in the natural reverb of the room, and we mm-hmm. had we we had a lot of close mics set up around the you know uh, right up on the instruments, and and this kind of like SM7 that I'm speaking into now right up on all the vocalists. So we had as much isolation as you can get by just getting right up to the sound mm, sources, okay. which isn't isn't much in a very small bathroom. Did you have any mics around for atmosphere? Absolutely, yeah. I'm all an that audio stuff. major yeah. from Emerson College. You know it, you know it. <laughs> um we had we had microphone we had we had the standard room mics that you would put up in the center of the ensemble, like a mono and a stereo pair also in the center. And then we had one in the shower stall and one in the, uh, like the little toilet stall area. And one, there was a, there was a like eight or 10 feet up above the shower. There's kind of like a, a square cutaway skylight up to the roof. Oh, wow. And so we, we took a really, really hefty mic stand and put a nice condenser on the top of that as high as we could stick it up there as kind of like a, a, a reverb send. Mm. And and I don't know exactly how Christopher McDonald, who's a Cuddle Magic member who mixed the record, exactly how he used all of these things, but I think he did some fancy manipulation and kind of conducting of all of these different sound sources to... He's to, a, I mean, 
I think you're a wonderful producer, but Christopher, Thank you. he's is amazing, amazing. He's like he, he did a, um, uh, he he was in Boca Chica in Pittsburgh for a yeah. little while. Oh, and, oh yeah, totally. I remember and, Boca Chica. Yeah, he did. Yeah. he did one of their records, and I was just like floored at how cool it sounded. Christopher taught me everything I know about audio, pretty much. You know, he's he he's the reason I know anything about recording. And I think that's probably just about true of, of all of us in Cuddle Magic. Mm-hmm. He's the guy who made the first couple Cuddle Magic records until we had the uh the in the you know, until we were at the point where we decided to get other people involved and then back to Bath, kind of also returning to our roots with this one, he was in charge of, of all the sonics mm-hmm. on that. He he engineered those sessions and mixed and mastered it. One more question about Bath. Like, how did you decide who was going to stand where? Like, how did you decide Ben and Kristen were going to stand in the tub and who's going to stand in the shower? I mean, I, I, we all sort of worked it out. I think probably Ben and Christopher sort of hashed out that plan, mostly. We we pretty much set up one way for the entire session. And there was a few songs we tracked where there was some moving around. I remember standing in the tub to play alto flute on something um, just because that song required, uh, you know, different microphones on different people. But we kind of set up in a certain way the, the pump organ, which well, it's not in this room right now, but is in another room in my house. There's like 85 of, instruments and microphones behind you. There's a lot of instruments behind me right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm having an okay pandemic, all things equal, because I'm in this nice... Brooklyn apartment that I've that I've finally kind of gotten together set up the way that I'd like it to be set up and mm. I sit at home all day surrounded by instruments and microphones and and I'm I'm very thankful for that. You had a pretty busy pandemic 2020 with two full-length albums um your your solo record Airplane Mode just uh, came out um, yes. in 2020, and I want to hear about the song "Hurt" a little. Um, oh yeah, where, like where it comes from, and where do you see it going? Because I feel like it's. I feel like you have some thoughts on that. <laughs> I I I suppose I do. Um, that's a co-write with Anna Eggie, um, and she also recorded it. On, we also recorded it on on the second record I, I made with her. Uh, Is it the kiss? And we also did it on the Cuddle Magic record. And um, it's a combination of, um, we were in Shoreham-by-Sea, which is a small town not far from Brighton in the UK, um, doing, uh, playing show, Anna and I playing some shows, and and we were put up by this great promoter, uh, Phil Jones, on his houseboat, and we're hanging out at the houseboat, and I was very, very sad because I had recently had a tumultuous, short-lived, barely a relationship with a woman that I fell uh, unduly hard for. Mm. And I was was sad about that one for a while um, until I finally kind of grew out of it. And, um, And I was thinking about some conversations that myself and this woman had had late night and I was trying to defend the idea that if things didn't 
always feel right between us, that might be okay, and it might just be the natural way that things happen on the way to a true, lasting, um, and, like, healthy relationship, that maybe it's okay if it hurts a little sometimes, and if we don't get along sometimes, and if the argument stretches out until three or four in the morning, that doesn't mean that this is, is a ship we need to abandon necessarily. And I started working on that one in that houseboat, and then Anna and I hashed out a lot of uh, the additional verses in a car ride into London to go play a show. We did a lot of good writing when we were touring for a couple years in cars. That's not easy. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, we would... We would have started a musical idea most often and have a couple of voice memos of that, and then we were kind of engaging in the 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 task of adding more lyrics to like writing additional verses, thinking about places that it could go. And Anna, I haven't done a lot of co-writing with a lot of people. Co-writing is very very hard, and for for me at least. And Anna kind of forced me to, in that song and the other things we wrote together, to um, to not try to lean so heavily on wordplay and humor and what rhymes and, and alliteration and to kind of write actually what I would, something a little uh, like get meatier. To the, get to the core of the feeling. Yeah, to get to the core of the feeling. And, um, and so it would be back and forth, me trying... You know, I mean, we, we would switch roles occasionally, and, and there's a little bit of, of um, you know, it, it was never quite so cut and dry, but there was a lot of me trying to get exactly the right number of syllables in a way that kind of tripped off the tongue and make sure the rhyme scheme that I was really excited about was preserved, and Anna trying to uh, keep us from from going into kind of just like show-offy um, you know, thesaurus land and actually tell tell a story that was simple and direct and could apply to not just my own peculiar experience, but to sort of the more broad experience. And I'm, and I'm sure because of that, there's particular experiences reflected in that song that she's thinking of. I can mm-hmm. only really tell you about the one that I'm thinking of. Right. What a great um, exercise for you. It was so good for me. It was, it, I learned so much. I like, I learned a whole lot working with Anna Eggy and, and performing with her and making records with her. And I learned a whole other different set of things, mm-hmm. writing songs with her and, and confronting the things that were most important to her about crafting a song, which were not at that time, the things that were the most important to me. Okay. Um, the last time I saw you perform, it was with Anna yeah, uh, at Folk Alliance, which is this huge folk music oh, conference, right. the Louisiana one, right before the plague, right in the before times. Yeah, right, right, right at the right under the wire. Yeah, um, you were playing bass clarinet, and I noticed that you were doing circular breathing. Yeah, and I was like, that is freaky. And of course, Alec can do circular breathing. Can you t- um, explain what it is and how you learned to do it? It's kind of like turning your cheeks into the bellows of a bagpipe. You keep filling them with air, and you puff your cheeks to allow them to fill with air, which is not the way that uh, you're supposed to play most wind instruments, but you can. 
Um, if you have a certain amount of control, you can play with good tone and let your cheeks inflate. And then when you need more oxygen, before you pass out, you do a quick inhale through your nose, and at the same time, you compress your cheeks. You're kind of like human bagpipe, and that quick um, exhalation, that, that, that quick puff of air that comes from you pressing your cheeks while you're inhaling new oxygen through your nose gets you through the moment when you would otherwise have to stop blowing through the instrument, and the sound keeps going while you refresh your lungs, and you don't pass out. And it's... um. It's a gimmicky old technique that all of my teachers over the years loved to say, you know, I'm glad you're excited about working on this, but there's very little practical application for this, just so you know. (laughs) And I just was the kind of, of dorky high schooler that loved this so much that I really wanted to get good at it and I and I did it for years not being that good at it and they were right all those years every time I did it it was probably more for my own edification than it served the music but eventually I got good enough at it that I could use it in musical ways and when you're trying to play bass clarinet to accompany a sol- an otherwise solo songwriter it's nice to not break the low note yeah um, because yeah, when a low note goes away, you really notice it. It's like the note is just continuous on and on and on. Mm-hmm. I remember our high school band teacher talking about circular breathing and saying, like, this is very hard. You can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing of squeezing the cheeks while you inhale through the nose is a little bit of like a pat your head, rub your tummy kind of thing. Mm. And I would, I, li- I remember working on that. <laughs> sitting in classes and I just must have looked like such a freak. I actually looked up you know? circular breathing how to do it on WikiHow before nice. <laughs> before yeah. we talked about this and I was looking at the comments um and somebody asked can you do this with flute? And so yeah, there's and a few people who can. It's very hard on flute. The answer they said, well they didn't say that. They said yes, but you have to set aside any self-respect because your pride will only hold you back from achieving what you want. Which I thought was like could be universally applied to a lot of things, but I thought it was great. Yeah, no, that's kind of the universal that's universally true. Because you look foolish when you're trying to do it. You kind of look foolish when you're doing it, no matter no matter matter what. what, Yeah. There's a jazz musician I really, really loved who did it very uh it was it was kind of a part of his shtick. In fact, a lot of his career was shtick. The saxophonist Rasan Roland Kirk, who also played three saxophones at the same time and oh played God. like half dozen different instruments, and and we just had this really uh, engaging sense of humor about his music. He was kind of like a jokester, um, avant-garde jazz musician, um, and he very very you know. He, he very, very prominently in, incorporated circular breathing into his performances, and I really liked him when I was in high school. That's cool. All right, Alec, before we go, um, will you do the lightning round with us? Okay, great, great. Okay, here we go. Okay, what was the first song you learned on the guitar? Uh, oh, this is going to take me a second. It might be one of those I mentioned earlier. It might be I do it for your love, it, but it probably wasn't. That's so hard. Oh, you know what it might have been really early on? Might have been Melvern Taylor's uh, song, Working Stiff. All right. Another person who's a very, very funny writer and inspiring in his sense of humor. What is your karaoke song? 
Oh, it's 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 probably mostly uh, Dock of the Bay. Dogs or cats or something else? Definitely dogs. What is your coffee order? Uh, these days I'm doing a pour over, kind of dark roast, no cream, no sugar. First celebrity crush? Catherine Keener in Being John Malkovich. He's <laughs> hot in that movie. That's perfect. Yeah. Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Quite possibly Jeremy McDonald, Christopher McDonald's brother. Huh. First album you bought with your own money? I think it might have been, I mean, it wasn't really my money because it was still my parents kind of hooking it up and, and getting me through life at this point. But it might have been Branford Marsalis Quartet Crazy People Music, which is a great Branford Marsalis record from the early 90s or the late 80s. What was your first concert? It was probably one of the many uh, Central Pennsylvania Friends of Jazz concerts. I would go. We'd go. We'd spend the whole weekend at the festival at the Harrisburg Hilton. My dad and me. What was the last book you read? Last last novel I finished was White Teeth by Zadie Smith. What was it about? It's about it's a, a fiction and it's about uh, it's it's in it's set in England and there's a, a couple characters who had kind of become friends at the very end of World War II, and then they make a life as immigrants in England, and their lives are complicated, and their families are complicated, and near the end of it, all of these different um, sort of, uh, all of these different elements having to do with kind of the immigrant experience and the Muslim experience in particular, and the, and the West Indian experience in England in like, I suppose, the 90s it's supposed to be sort of come together in a mm. moment of potential terroristic violence. Jeez. It's hilarious. Oh, and it's hilarious. Zay, 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 Zadie Smith is a very funny, funny writer. Beatles or the Rolling Stones? I've never gotten into the Stones. One day I'm going to learn how to appreciate the Stones, but I've made a deep study of some Beatles records, and one of the first songs that I wrote with words, uh, this song called Expectations, is based partly, is inspired by two songs. It's inspired by I'll Follow the Sun and by uh, What a Girl Wants. What a Girl Wants was was a hit for, um, uh, what's her name? Britney Spears? No, no, not Britney. Um, Christina Aguilera? Yeah, Christina Aguilera. Oh. Uh, found out it's written by she- Shelley Pikin is the name of the woman who wrote oh. it. It's a great, really cool song that's got sneaky, crooked things going on with the harmonic progression in the middle. By fellow Pennsylvanian, Christina Aguilera. Is she a Pennsylvanian? Mm-hmm. Wow, I didn't She's know that. She's from Wexford, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Pittsburgh. Amazing singer. Amazing singer. What a Girl Wants, super, super deep song. Yeah, I, well, I did it years ago. I had an arrangement of it that I did with some friends. I don't think I sang it. Anyway, good one. Flying or invisibility? Flying. Invisibility seems kind of... Like, who does that? That just seems kind of... Like, people have... I don't know what they have in mind wanting to be invisible. <laughs> okay, here's the last question. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Ooh. Interesting. Um... I remember Garden of the Gods, which I think is somewhere in New Mexico, being really great. I, I, I don't have a good answer for that one. Congratulations for making it through the lightning round. Um, you have my utmost respect and admiration. Thank you, Cindy. 
And thanks for being on the podcast. It was so nice to to talk to you for this long. And yeah, I wish like we were in Boston at the same time, but we didn't ever cross paths. I think so. It's nice. No. To, it's nice to be able to um, be friends in, as we grow into our middle age together. Yay! <laughs> Basic Folk This Week, produced by John Nungesser. We are on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. Our music is done by Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople. I'm Cindy House. Thank you so much for checking this out. And if you know someone who would like this episode, please share it with them. You can find all of the episodes wherever you get podcasts or at my website, cindyhouse.net. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye.